Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is the Right Reverend Scott Barker, Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Nebraska. The Right Reverend Joseph Scott Barker is an American Episcopal clergyman and the 11th and current Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Nebraska. In 2011, Barker was elected as the 11th Bishop of Nebraska, returning home from Warwick, New York, to begin that ministry in the autumn of that year. In this new chapter, he helps care for 52 church communities planted over 77,000 square miles of Nebraska's beautiful, if sometimes lonely, landscape. Barker was born in Omaha, Nebraska, and is a sixth-generation Omaha. He graduated from Yale College in 1985 with a BA in Religious Studies, and from Berkeley Divinity School at Yale in 1992 with a Master's of Divinity in Anglican Studies. At Berkeley, he was awarded the Mercic Prize for Effective Public Address and Preaching and the Tweedy Prize for Exceptional Promise as a Pastoral Leader. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stuart. Good to be here. A small question, where did your faith emerge from? <laughs> small, huh? This is going to be a long hour. Um, well, I guess I'd point to two things. Partly my faith is um, a result of my family background and my family heritage. I was born um, here in Omaha and am a lifelong Episcopalian. So attending church and being exposed to the teachings of the church and the way of Jesus was a part of my childhood from before I couldn't remember. I continued as a family member who was part of a, a group that um, attended worship and participated in the life of the church in a meaningful way right on through my young adulthood. I really came into faith of my own as a young adult, first by studying religion in college. I studied religion at Yale. I was interested in why in the world people would believe things that um, defied my budding intellect at the time. I couldn't make sense of why people could believe in the supernatural. That was a fascinating question to me, and so that was sort of at the heart of my intellectual inquiry as a college religious studies major. And shortly after graduating from college, I'd, I really had a sense of wanting to work in the church and perhaps being called to ministry, but my own faith still felt very tender. And I, as a college graduate, I continued to read theology and read about faith and how people came to that. And I was riding on the train home from work at a law firm one day, reading my umpteenth book about coming to faith. It suddenly dawned on me that this was not something I was ever going to come to by reading the right book, that in fact, I would simply have to make a decision to be a believer if I was interested in that. And... um I decided then and there on the train to believe. I decided that um, as to all the wondrous stories of miracles in the Bible and in my own faith tradition, that I would just count those as true and live my life uh, in light of that hope. And things unfolded in a pretty quick way from there. I was soon off to seminary and, um, and soon ordained a priest, and it's been a, a glorious journey since then. Two immediately interesting elements to that background story. One is that you were working at a law firm. Right. Before I jump to the second question, tell me what was that uh, phase, stage, interim period yeah, in your life? It was real. 
So it towards the close of my undergraduate study, I was in this milieu where everyone was going to graduate school. Without a ton of thoughtfulness about that, I was pure liberal arts. I had no um, affinity for science and no talent at it. So it felt to me like, well, I'll either go to law school or medical school. Medical school's out. It was almost that um, shallowly considered. I, I finished my first year of law school. I was just desperately unhappy. I was in the wrong place. And looking over my shoulder, I feel like that was a moment in my life where I was really out of touch with the call of the spirit on my life. I just, nothing felt right. So I withdrew, went and worked in a law firm in Washington, DC, a law firm with an Omaha, with Omaha roots. And I worked there for about three years. I, I uh, spent time chasing down the woman who became my wife. I, um, I ultimately went to work part-time in a church to sort of test what that might be like in a nine-to-five setting. And with the support, really the wonderful support of the folks in the law firm ultimately made my way back to seminary and the study of theology. Part of my experience working in the law firm, I was in a humane law firm, a terrific law firm, surrounded by bright and committed people. But by and large, they were not happy with their lives. And uh, partly that was because I was working with a lot of young lawyers who yet had a long ways to go and the, and the demands of the profession were great. But I think it was more than that. I think there was a way in which many of those people aspired to more in terms of helping others and living into their best hopes for who God created them to be. And it was, it was a pretty narrow straitjacket to be in that setting and try to do those things. I also think it's fascinating that you just mentioned you worked part-time at a church. Right. And in some ways suggesting that this was dipping a toe in the water. And to me it feels like, um, I don't know, like a, a, a job experience where you're testing them. D does this work for me? D do I work for you? And I think most people believe or have this idea that to enter the church, there has to be some uh, more rigid and defined furrow that leads you into this. And the idea, though, uh, seems really modern that you would do some kind of work experience or job sharing or volunteering. And, and that seems very modern to me. How, how did you um, venture into being as vested as you are now in the church? Sure. I suppose my journey is modern in a sense. In seminary, what I came to believe is that God gave people what they needed in terms of a sense of call to get them onto the right path. So some people in seminary had these extraordinary stories of, for instance, I can think of a friend who was in church one day, praying earnestly about what she might do with her, her life, and she literally heard what she took to be the, the audible voice of God tell her that she needed to go to seminary and become a priest. I had nothing like that in my life. My story is more that I had a sense of certain talents and aspirations and hopes about who I would be and what was meaningful to me. And part of that was about my history in the church and my course of study as an undergrad. Part of it was sort of generic hope about making a difference in the world and hoping to um, find a profession that hooked up with being kind. And in conversation and later on prayer with many people, I finally um, really made a decision of my own will that I would test whether or not I might have a calling to ministry. That led to a part-time job. 
I was determined not to make the same mistake I'd made with law school, where I'd hardly met a lawyer and certainly never been uh, for a moment uh, to a law firm in my life. So I thought, well, I'll go actually try this and see what it is. I worked as a clerk in a really wonderful, historically black church in Alexandria, Virginia, was exposed to an extraordinary priest who was just a civil rights warrior and um, an incredible human being. And I found that whole experience to be encouraged and hopeful and transformative for me in many ways, and so soon was off to the races. One would think that by definition, any of the traditional faiths is grounded in some sense of social justice, but that isn't necessarily how the institution manifests in the world. Right, um, right. There's a distinction to be made between faith and its practice in one's life and then the organizing structures that go around it, which we might call religion. What were your experiences that made you realize that actually having a role in the religious structural aspect of faith practice was what you wanted to do, as, as opposed to perhaps um, being satisfied that you could be kind and faithful, but you didn't have to be involved in some organizational capacity? Part of the answer to that question has to do with my personal history my mother died very suddenly of an overdose of alcohol and barbiturates when I was 15. At the time, we were very much involved in the life of the church as a family, and so quite suddenly in the midst of this incredible tragedy as a young man, I had an experience of the church, the institution, coming to life in a way that was so caring and so loving and so courageous in the face of um, a devastated family and a devastated bunch of kids, uh, that it really enriched and changed my conception of what the church could be in the deepest imaginable way. On the morning my mother died, the first person through the door happened to be a person from All Saints Episcopal Church, which was our family church. He had seen the rescue squad in the driveway, knew something was amiss, and came rushing in. And over the course of the day, Many, if not most, of the visitors who came to try to bring a word of hope and comfort were church people. You know, I was furious and sad, and a lot of what I heard I didn't want to hear and I didn't like, including a lot of pablum about God needing another angel and things like that. But later on, I couldn't help but notice who it was that had the courage and the faith to try, who showed up on one of the worst days of my life, and it was the church.
And so that was an experience that informed your sense of what a church could be. And that was something that made you think that this, I, I want to take a role in, in the, um, the engine, as it were, that makes faith available to people. Yes, yes. So part of the answer might be that I think some people come to the church by first meeting the person of Jesus. They get excited about Jesus, the, the stories, the person, perhaps a relationship. And that brings them to the church. I really backed into this thing the other way. I had an experience of church that was meaningful as a young person, profoundly meaningful in that moment of tragedy we just talked about. But really, it was college and beyond where I came to understand the biography of Jesus and later on became comfortable knowing that I, in fact, have a relationship with Jesus. Then circling back, I can see, well... The reason those Christians showed up on the day my mother died had a lot to do with having been formed as disciples of Jesus, being taught not to fear as a preeminent plank of the gospel, and more than that, not even fearing the greatest of all human challenges and mysteries, which is an untimely death. So I do think there was something about religious practice and the deepest sort of religious belief in the person of Jesus, his story of overcoming sin and death that gave people the, not only the courage, but the, a sense of will and obligation to show up on the day mom died. Your formal title is um, Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Nebraska. What do you do? <laughs> so a, one of the great surprises of my life is that it, it turns out bishops are administrators. And a tremendous amount of my work is the purely administrative detail that is required to keep a large institution moving on a rather grand scale. There are 52 churches in the Diocese of Nebraska and other affiliate institutions, lots of clergy, many thousands of lay people. And just moving that project ahead in a healthy and happy way requires a ton of administrative work. And that turns out to be my job. The favorite part of my job is the much smaller part, and that is that I get to visit every one of the 52 communities that are our Episcopal churches across the whole landscape of Nebraska, and I really endeavor to visit every church once a year. So I, I'm in a pickup truck, usually with my canon to the ordinary, and we travel all over the state and visit these churches, both large and small and urban and rural settings. I just have started my ninth year of this ministry. It is still the great adventure of my life to go visit those places and come to know those people more deeply, to pray with them, to try to serve them in some meaningful way, to be encouraging in a moment where the church is not ascendant and where there are lots of challenges, and to continue to be a student. I am constantly learning about different landscapes and geographies and vocations and and all the rest that goes with um, encountering these diverse communities across this great state. In your bio, we're talking about a vast state. 77,000 square miles. Astonishing, right? <laughs> it's big. And then these 52 church communities that, that you're tending to. But you also just said 
in an environment where the church is not ascendant. Yes. And you mentioned the word challenges. Yes. So what is the state of faith generally in Nebraska and, and especially your own faith right. tradition in Nebraska? Right. So um, I'm not particularly a student of sociology in this moment, so it's hard for me to speak to the broad question of, of the state of faith in a place like a state of the United States. My impression is that we, we often say that Nebraska is a place where the future of Christianity has already arrived. Um, and in, the, in Nebraska, in the Episcopal Church especially, what that means is that we have many small faith communities. Many of those churches that I just described visiting uh, have an average Sunday attendance of a dozen or maybe 20 people on a typical Sunday. So a notion of what a church community looks like that was established several generations ago in this place and included a regular priest to care for a congregation and a pretty white building with a red door and a bell tower to call people to worship and a very organized and sort of robust ministry of caring for the larger community. All of that is increasingly difficult to maintain in a moment where fewer and fewer people have any sense of connection to faith in life, let alone to a, an organized bit of religion like the Episcopal Church in Nebraska. So the challenges are real. Um, I, I bring tremendous hope to the moment. Partly that's how I'm wired. Partly it's because of my constant exposure to the depth of fierce devotion to keeping the church going across our communities and the incredible sacrificial love that people offer to one another through the bonds of being fellow members of the church and through the way that even under the pressure of fewer numbers and less financial resources, we have people still trying to find ways to seek and serve the very least in the various communities where they're planted. And those stories can still be really moving and I think transformative for the communities we're talking about. I often say that I'm standing at a, an extraordinary moment in Christian history anyway, where there's a, there's a past with incredible inherited treasure and all kinds of expectations and experience about the institution of the church that's hundreds and even thousands of years old and a very uncertain future as to, as to the project of faith in humanity and especially in the Western world. And so what the future of the church will be. I don't think in my short lifetime we're either going to step out of that inherited in, um, past or fully step into this unknown future. So it's an exciting and a scary place to stand, especially as a church leader. What is growing at the moment in the church, however you choose to define the idea of growing? Yeah. So a couple of things. In terms of the most intimate and um, personal of faith journey um, issues, I feel like it is still true that in any individual human life, there is that extraordinary moment when a human being like me riding on that train all those years ago decides to say, I'm, I'm going to believe this. Um, I'm going to believe this thing. 
and then committing themselves to that larger project, allow God to work in their lives to shape them into more faithful and loving human being. That's still like any individual human story of that encounter with God and that effort to be a faithful disciple is still astonishing and wonderful to me. And that's, that's real growth and an extraordinary life. In terms of the institution, there are things that are growing too. One, you know a little bit about from having um, interviewed Brother James here in Omaha, but I think the project of his Benedictine way is a great illustration of the kind of thing that there are reports of growing across the church. And that, to remind your listeners, the, the Episcopal Diocese of Nebraska has established a small monastery here in North Omaha. It has grown spectacularly in terms of its numbers over the short course of the year and a half that it's been with us. What amazes me about its astonishing growth is that the invitation Brother James is making to the people who would be his fellow monks or uh, the Benedictine Service Corps members who are in the adjacent community is an invitation into a really hard and challenging life of faith. Come live very simply in Christian community with people you don't know um, pray with us a bunch of times a day, make your entire vocation about serving the poor and the outcast, and we'll pay you pretty much nothing to do that. That's a hard and surprising invitation. And to think that folks from Texas and Kansas and elsewhere across the U.S., Nebraska too, and now outside of the country, are affiliating with this community and wanting to join and be challenged in that way, it speaks to me of the power of authentic Christian faith that still lived with integrity. Um, when that invitation is made, the church still grows, and that's super exciting to me. That's a nice segue, I think, and circle back. This idea of the church's role in community. How would you describe to people that don't know, such as myself, how the church is involved in broader social issues that impact the communities in which, in which you exist? Right. Well, where the church is 
best in terms of social issues. It follows the teachings and witness of Jesus in terms of radically and deeply loving outside of oneself. That can look different in different communities and different ages. The Episcopal Church is, um, is somewhat renowned in this moment for having decided to live out that kind of pattern of faithful, loving discipleship in a couple of ways. We are deeply inclusive of the LGBTQ community, and we're among the very first of the mainline churches to ordain gay and lesbian people, including as bishops like myself, to bless same-sex marriages and offer full sacramental equality for gay and lesbian folks who want to be married in the church, increasingly to be advocates for transgender folks to make sure that those people are not only welcome in our churches, but are lifted up as leaders who have gifts that God has um, knit in them from the very beginning. So in that issue, the Episcopal Church leads out of a sense that loving abundantly and across every line of division is one critical way to be. And we have decided that when God creates a human being, a sexuality is planted in them, that that's not a choice they make. And so that um, just like any sexuality, gay or straight, that's just something to be ordered and blessed by the church and um and by god behind that and so that's part of who we are equally though jesus lived in a time that was far more violent than our time he still has an ethic of nonviolence that is second to none and astonishing in this age jesus is turn the other cheek if someone strikes you jesus is pray for those who persecute you Jesus says, love your enemies. And one could go on and on, quoting from the teachings that he left with the church. In this moment, one of the places where the Episcopal Church has said, we will embrace that radical ethic of love and be a community of nonviolence has to do with the proliferation of firearms and feeling like we need to press back against gun violence. This is a hard issue in a place like Nebraska, where guns are tools. And certainly in greater Nebraska, I'm not going to tell a rancher or a farmer who's a 45-minute ride from the local sheriff and who might have to put a suffering animal down that they shouldn't have a rifle on hand and enough ammunition to do the job that needs to be done. On the other hand, I cannot imagine gazing into the eyes of Jesus on the day I go to heaven and trying to explain that perhaps there was once a time in my life when out of fear I pointed a gun at another human being, thinking that somehow because my life was under assault or at risk, or even that the life of someone I loved was at risk, it could possibly be consonant with his teachings to think that you would point a gun at another person and pull a trigger and take their life. That will never, that will never be a logical connection for a follower of Jesus who deeply knows his teachings. And I recognize that, that that kind of statement of nonviolence is incredibly challenging and even scary. And I will freely confess that if I were to find myself in that very situation, the one I just described, I don't know that for sure that I would have the courage or the faith not to, um, not to shoot the gun. But I know that if I did so, I wouldn't have Jesus on my side. What is the church actively doing? in terms of its contribution to a discussion around or a debate around or an assertion that perhaps there's a policy role 
that you might influence in a more formal way. So how is the church itself sort of stepping into that discussion that guns may not sit neatly with a faith tradition that you have? So I'm a member in the Episcopal Church of a group called Bishops United Against Gun Violence. This organization is several years old. It's a national organization, and it's now much larger than its many bishop members, who I believe now number well over 50, maybe closer to 100 bishops from the American church. And the work of that ministry is principally two things. We do organize advocacy under the auspices of the larger Episcopal Church, which maintains a lobbying arm in Washington, D.C., and also has local organizations of various effectiveness to lobby in state houses. So the Bishops United group is often behind efforts when bills come up in local or national contexts to organize people of faith in the Episcopal Church and beyond to go to the state house and speak against gun violence. Now, the technicalities of any given gun bill are, are, you know, that's hard work. And I should add that part of the reason I'm proud to be part of Bishops United is that the bishop members include lots of retired members of the armed services and police departments and other paramilitary organizations, lots of hunters and gun owners. So these are not people who think um, that gun ownership is a problem. Um, it's a question of how guns are used. So part of Bishops United is to try to, to, to organize against common sense efforts to just regulate the use of guns, not to take them away from people. And then secondarily, there's a public witness aspect to organizing. And that has to do simply with calling attention to the, um, the terrible cost of gun violence in our society. And that includes suicides and murders and accidental shootings and all the rest. All of that is gun violence. All of that would be reduced by common sense gun laws, which the vast majority of Americans are in favor of, including the vast majority of gun owners. You know all this. So, um, so it's partly about organizing when there's a tragedy and inviting people as members of the faith, faith community who have hope in the face of the worst life has to throw at us to say, if there's been extreme violence, if there's been human death, we're going to shine a light there. And uh, that light is equally to say, as people of faith, we have hope. This is not the end. We do not fear. But it's also to say, this is a real tragedy. It is a present and powerful issue. We're not going to wait till tempers cool down until some time has passed to talk about it. We're going to talk about it now. Now is the time. And Stuart, I would add that on this and many issues, the church is, is I believe, the sleeping giant. There are, there are still a majority of Americans who claim to believe in God and claim to be members of faith communities. And I think most of those are people of deep and real faith. And too often... We fail to be our best selves and fail to be the kind of disciples that Jesus calls us to be by really powerfully living that faith in our lives. I feel like if the church organized well and woke up, we would change the world. Wake up everybody.
nobody, no more sleeping in bed. No more back to thinking, time for thinking ahead. The world has changed so very much from what it used to be. There's so much hatred, war and poverty. Oh. Then they'll listen to what you have to say They're the ones who's coming up And the world is in their hands When you teach the children To jump the very best you can The world won't get no better If we just let it be na 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 Change it now, just you and me. It's not my faith tradition, but I'm struggling to understand how current administration can have such a strong and persistently supportive inclination from the evangelical tradition. I, I guess I'm struggling to understand how different traditions and especially evangelicals can have uh, the perspective they do when so much is flawed about the idea about gun control for example and um, social justice and poverty and this kind of thing and so i i don't know if you have any uh enlightenment that you can share with me about how to see different faith approaches to yeah. Well, seem to be the same issue, but with different prescriptions for it. Well, I can talk in general terms. It's always been surprising and confounding to me that people of deep Christian faith choose to live out those values in often polar opposite ways. That was vexing to me and a mystery 10 or 20 years ago when I was in the middle of this work or beginning this work. And at the time, I really took that to be partly about the, the sort of the vast wisdom and person of God. I just figured, well, God is so big and mysterious that it makes some sense to me that people of genuinely prayerful outlook and with sort of equal wisdom about biblical teaching and all the rest might come to different conclusions because God is huge. Now, that's a little flat-footed, but that was that it, 10 years ago. That's how I might have made sense of this conundrum. That is an increasingly an unsatisfying lens to me to look through. What I increasingly believe is that a vast swath of Christians, especially in this country, are simply ill-informed about the teachings and person of Jesus, or they're big, fat hypocrites, and they're simply not following the word and wisdom of their Lord and Savior. I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I'm going to segue into something you just told me uh, off air, which is, as I read out in your bio, you are the right reverend Joseph Scott Barker, but you go by Scott. Um, and that is in part because you are the sixth Joseph 
in, in your lineage here. And so you are a sixth generation Omaha. That's right. I, I don't quite know where to start with that. Well, maybe we should just start at the beginning. Do you know much about your family history through those six generations and perhaps even I further? do. I, I can give you the nutshell. The, the very first Joseph Barker was an English clergyman in that out of the United Methodist tradition. It wasn't that then, but it was sort of the branch of the Anglican Church that was emerging as the Methodist Church. He came to Omaha to make his fortune. He'd actually been a member of the House of Commons, and, um, and he was quite controversial uh, as a speaker and particularly as a pastor. He made his way to America to make his fortune. He was in Ohio briefly. He ended up in Nebraska. He um, staked a, a claim on a, a bunch of land, both in what is now downtown Omaha, and he had a big farm near where Creighton Preparatory School is today. And having staked that claim, he traveled back to England. Words soon came that people were stealing his land, so he sent his son, Joseph Parker, too, to come to Omaha and protect the family property. That Joseph Barker is sort of renowned in Nebraska history because he wrote these letters home every day of his life from Omaha to London, which tell the story of Omaha being settled. So that's Joseph Barker number two. His son, Joseph Barker three, was the great businessman and philanthropist of the family. He really made a fortune in real estate and was king of Exarban and a great um, civic and social leader. And um, he died as a very young man, but um, left behind my grandfather, Jody. That's Joseph Barker Four, also a great businessman, great philanthropist, um, loved Omaha and, and lived here his whole life, but for going away to get an education in the East Coast. My father follows another businessman, civic and social leader. Dad was, a, was particularly interested in issues around race relations at the time of the civil rights movement when he was a young man in Omaha. And then there's me, and in some ways it's full circle back to the Anglican church and a clergyman now six generations later. And I have a son, Joseph, who goes by his middle name, Sam. And um, remarkably, he now lives in Omaha too, though he grew up in New York, but he's decided to come home and lives here now. So we'll see what happens with Sam. Are there any unusual pressures that you've had to come to terms with, given that kind of lineage? Mostly it's been a blessing. You know, when people say that they have roots or they're from a place, I have that in the most profound, imaginable way. I've lived away from Omaha for 15 or 20 years of my life, but this place is home in a way that you can, you can imagine, given that history. Um, the only real pressure, and I bless my father for this, I, there, there was pressure as a young man to enter the family business, which had been extant for generations at the time I was graduating from college and trying to decide what to do with my life. Dad, he made it clear that it would have meant an awful lot to him if I had um, sold insurance, which is eventually what the, the real estate agency became an insurance agency, and um, that was the family business. But dad ultimately let me make my own way. And though I think he scratched his head initially when I told him I thought I was called to become a priest and went off to seminary, he eventually embraced that in the kindest way that you could imagine. And I know he was very proud of me. And I know it was one of the happiest days of his life and mine when I was elected to serve as Bishop of Nebraska and was able to return home after having been away for a decade. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> Won't you let me tell you how I feel about you, babe? What is the hierarchy of the church? Are there aspirations on your part to grow further in the church hierarchy? So typically, the job of bishop diocesan, which is the kind of bishop I am, is understood to be the last job. There are um, about a hundred bishops in the uh, active bishops in the um, American Episcopal Church. I shouldn't say American. We're much. We're in seventeen countries. We're much more than an American church. Pardon me, but most typically. People will serve for 10 or 15 years, perhaps less, and then, and that's their last job. I came to this job on the early side. And so I, I, it's hard for me to imagine I would serve until I'm 72 years old. I don't think that would be good for Nebraska. I'm not sure it would be good for me, but I, I do imagine it's probably my last job. Occasionally people will go serve as a bishop elsewhere. It's possible that one could become the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, but there's only one of those, and that only happens about once every nine years. So that seems very unlikely for me. Um, so probably I will retire someday in the in the long ahead future as Bishop of Nebraska. What then keeps you motivated? And and I say that quickly, uh, caveating that that I've never thought that just promotion or advancement in, in any kind of career is intrinsically and inherently the motivating factor. But given what you've described, th this is your role as you see it for the next several years. So what is it that you're motivated by and hoping to achieve in, in that period? Yeah. Well, in a way that I'm not particularly proud of, but to be honest, I, I think about my legacy I'm, not, I'm a very minor public figure, but at least in the Episcopal Church annals, there'll be something written about me someday, and I'm aware of that. I hope very much in endeavoring to make it so that the Episcopal Church in Nebraska actually grows during the time that I serve here. And if we can't grow in numbers, which is my great hope, I hope at least we'll grow in a depth of faithfulness and in offering creative and life-giving ministry to the world that has a measurable impact and that would be a good story to tell. Um, Behind that, the more profound thing is that I, I just really want to be a faithful disciple. My friend, Canon Easton, whom we've interviewed, often cracks that she's such a bad Christian, they have to pay her to do it. <laughs> and there is a way in which clergy people are blessed. You know, we don't, we, we, it is to the advantage of one's career to be a very faithful follower of Jesus. So if I figure out ways to live um, sacrificially and lovingly and in a way that really encourages and helps build community, which are just basic invitations of following Jesus that anybody who chooses that would be drawn to. But, but I get rewarded for doing that as a clergy person, and that's, that's kind of a fun uh, advantage. So in some ways, the longer I'm in this game, the more interested I am in simply being a deeply faithful disciple and trusting 
that whatever rewards flow from that, God will bless. I'm a lot less worried about climbing a ladder or, um, or worrying about what sort of professional profile I'll present to the world than I used to be. I'm much more worried now about being authentic and kind and having great integrity as a disciple. What would you say to um, invite people in? Mm. I'm wondering about that just in the sense that, um, unlike the commercial world, I think you're offering something um, that is uh, actually giving to people. So I'm wondering what you would say to people in terms of an invitation to be embraced. Yeah. Well, I guess two things. I think you have to start with an awareness and acknowledgement of the fact that we live in a, in a secular age. So I, I recognize that for the vast majority of listeners, the whole question of whether or not God exists or whether organized religion has any value, personal, might have any personal value whatsoever as an active one. I know that lots of people listening just would, th those questions wouldn't be asked. So I, I get that I can't assume that the, that what I've devoted my life to has much value or is much appreciated by a lot of people. That keeps me humble. Um, having said that, I hope and believe that if you were to walk into an Episcopal church on a Sunday morning, you would encounter a group of people who were, um, serious about loving one another in sacrificial and meaningful ways, who believed that the person of Jesus was in fact present in their midst in a way that is real and true and um, invitational, who would strike a beautiful balance between inherited religious tradition, ancient prayers with beautiful language, music that has lifted up the people of God for centuries and centuries, but also um, are pretty hip and are aware that um, sometimes ancient language is a stumbling block, especially when, when it comes to conceptions about um, God's gender <laughs> or, or the diversity of any given congregation and all the wonderful folks who were there. So those are things we're attentive to and um, aware of in worship and do our best to live into. So um, I think we're... I think we're a rather extraordinary faith community. And I'm fi I finally, I would circle back, you know, to me, I can really testify that there is a whole area of human wisdom and endeavor when it comes to faith that's just incredibly rich and worth exploring. And in the same way that you might have an appreciation for art or a devotion to uh, love, or a sense of um, an appreciation of nature. Like there's so many parts of wisdom and experience that enrich human life and faith life and, and organized religion, which is the best way we figured out to keep that before people and to support them in that endeavor is just a worthwhile thing to sink one's teeth into. I have a lot easier time chatting with folks and befriending folks who are from faith communities vastly different from mine, by and large, than I do with people who don't get it at all. That's, that tends to be more challenging for me. I think there's, um, I just feel confident to say that whatever your faith tradition, that is, a, that is a piece of human being that is worth exploring. 
I've been in conversation with the Right Reverend Scott Barker, Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Nebraska. Scott, thank you so much for your time and the conversation. You're welcome, Stuart. What a privilege to be here. Thank you. going to be a mess. <laughs> Got it. I'm pretty waspy. I, I kind of, I'm buttoned down. <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. Our sound engineers are Mark McGaw and Dalimar McTizik. I'm your host and producer, Stuart Chittenden. Live's radio show is an executive production of Squish Talks. Find links to podcasts of this and previous shows via our Instagram and Facebook profiles at Lives Radio Show. Join me next week for more conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life.